Gospels, we sometimes think of Jesus, and, and actually not even just as we read through the Gospels, we often think of Jesus as kind of just a loved guy that people fawned over until, you know, his crucifixion. And, and oftentimes we don't make the connection of why he was crucified, why he was um, rejected in a lot of ways. And so today we're going to actually be looking at a rejection of Jesus that happened in his hometown, one that uh, people oftentimes will... Um, teach on, think about, and, and give opinions on that sometimes can be right and good and sometimes can be wrong. And so we want to look today at, at Jesus and, and his, his interaction with the people of his hometown. Uh, he, had this, he, he had this wonderful love for not just his hometown, but for everyone. And yet, as we are about to read here, uh, not everyone accepted everything that he was wanting to say, which is very similar today. So let's read in the passage in Luke chapter 4. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 on. And it says this, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, he, uh, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to, to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were, who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up in three years and, in, and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Let's pray really quick. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that we have these examples of, of you preaching what is true about yourself, as well as what can speak to us in your words. And so, Lord, I pray that today, as we study your word, you would speak to us clearly, and that we would be encouraged and edified to live a life that is more closely attached to what you would have us do. We love you, and we thank you in your name. Amen. So the first things that we want to look at in this passage is not, you know, the anger that the crowd eventually gets to. The first things that I, I would like to look at is some of the things that set the stage for 
what we're seeing and what's actually happening. And in between, it's important to notice that in between verses 13 and 14, there was about a year of space. So Jesus goes into uh, the wilderness and gets tempted by Satan. And then in between verses 13 and 14, there's a year where Jesus actually goes into Judea. And this is, if you want to do more study on that, it's found in John chapters 2 through 5. And you can read about this year that Jesus was in Judea, uh, ministering at the wedding of Cana, as well as going to the Samaritan woman at the well. And so we have those, those accounts there in that year that happened, as well as a few others um, as well. But this is really um, the beginning of his Galilean public ministry. Um, this, is, this is in verse 14. It's his early public ministry, if, if you want to talk about that. And so it's important to know... Um, how the, the Jewish teaching culture of the day worked as he goes to these synagogues. Because what would happen is it was common for um, the rabbis, the teachers, um, the, the, the wise men to go to, uh, to different areas and, and be invited to read a scripture. Um, you see Jesus here in the, in the moment kind of standing up and volunteering to, to read a scripture. And then they're allowed to do a teaching on that scripture. Um, whatever that scripture of the day was. So Jesus is going through Galilee. He's teaching at all these various synagogues. And as usual, people are glorifying him through that. They're following him around. They're seeing probably, I mean, we assume many miracles and many different things that Jesus is doing. And the reason why we assume those things is because we see that that's the precedent that he has everywhere else in scripture, is where Jesus goes, throngs of people follow. His name spread far, wide, and fast. And people wanted to go and see him. They wanted to go and experience what, what was going on with, with this Jesus guy. And there is no difference here. Uh, he, goes, he goes through the synagogues. He teaches. People follow. Um, they, they listen to what he has to say. Then he comes to Nazareth here in verse 16. We see that he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, uh, where, where he grew up, essentially. He was born in Bethlehem, not very far away from Nazareth, but he grew up in Nazareth. And, and so this is kind of going back home to his home church, if you will, because that's essentially what synagogue was, was just church. And so uh, in verse 16, we have a very important note that's easy to read over quickly if we aren't careful. And I, I just want to read it really quickly. Um, it says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and his, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. As his custom was, this is a, this is a, a reference to a habit. This is a reference to um, a, a habitual thing that Jesus did regularly, as his custom was. It, meant, it means this is what he, he normally did every week or every day or whatever it may be. He did these things. There are two other things that we read in Scripture that Jesus did regularly. Um, as his custom was. He, he prayed regularly, and we can see that in Luke 22, uh, chapter, or verse 39. Uh, and we also can see that, in, that he taught others in Mark chapter 10. So, so these three things are the things that Scripture referenced Jesus, is, Jesus would do habitually or that he would customarily do. And that is he would teach the Scriptures. He would teach others. He would pray regularly. Um, and then he would, he would also uh, go into the synagogues. And, and essentially, this is, this is the same as saying going to church. Uh, Jesus would go to church. He made a habit of going to church. And it's safe to say 
that if Jesus found these three practices to be more than the occasional happening, but but actually habits that he that he habitually did, that we can also apply that to our own lives. We can also apply the idea that we should be going to church, we should be praying, we should be teaching others, or or what we would say maybe is discipling others. We should be doing these things because not only because Jesus did them, but the, because it grows us closer to Jesus. It grows us closer to the Father, and that was what it meant to have a relationship. It meant doing these things so that he could remain in relationship with the Father. And so if it was important for Jesus to do that, how much more important is it for us to do it? Because Jesus is God. So if anybody could get away without praying, it was Jesus. If anybody could get away without going to church, it was Jesus. Because he didn't need to go to church. He was God. He, he didn't need to pray. He, he was God. He is God, I should say. And yet we see him preaching, we see him teaching, we see him praying, and we see him going to be amongst the fellowship of the brothers. It was, it was definitely a cultural thing to go to church. It was, you saw community gatherings at, at church, you saw different ideas and thought processes coming out. It was, it was a very communal idea. And, and so that's a little bit different than our current context of what we see church as because church is more of a, a chore that we do. Or if it's not a chore, it's something that we habitually do because, well, it's what my parents did or it's because I'm, my pastor tells me I'm supposed to or whatever it may be. And yet Jesus treated it as an opportunity to not just teach others and disciple others, but also to get to know people. He used it as an opportunity to, to interact with with these people that he loved so dearly. And I, I think that we would do well to understand that that is not different for us. Even though we may treat church a little bit differently, maybe we don't, but maybe we treat church a little bit differently if we're honest with ourselves. I, I think we need to be careful and we need to re-examine how we treat the church body because the fellowship of the believers is important. And Jesus was showing us that here. And we even, we even see that if you, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, we even see that where he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. We see this idea of continuing to praise God, to teach with the brethren, to talk with the brethren, to, to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so um, if that was important for Christ to do, how much more important is, that, is it for us to do? And so it's, it's key for the follower of Christ to pray often, to teach and disciple others as we see in Matthew chapter 28, and to, to glorify, sorry, to, to make going to church a priority above any others. Make going to be in fellowship with believers a priority above all others. And we live in a culture where that's not exactly the goal. Because we have busy lifestyles. We, we have different sporting events or we have different obligations or families or gatherings or, or different things or even just vacation time or whatever it may be. We, we have these things that are important to us and they're important to enjoy those things for sure, but not at the cost of church, 
not at the cost of fellowship with the brothers and sisters of Christ. And that's where it's key, is we have to be careful that our priorities are correct in this. Because Jesus' priority was to be there. It was his custom to be there. And so how much more should it be for us? Um, so anyway, moving on from that, we go into the next section where we, we see his, this Isaiah prophecy, where, where he sits down, he, he gets handed the scroll um, in verse 17. He was given this, this opportunity to read the daily scripture and to give a teaching on it. And, and, and this was very common, again, as we talked about in, in all synagogues. It wasn't just this one was, hey, Jesus is home, let's, let's give him an opportunity. This was, his opportun- uh, this was, a, this was a normal happening. And so Jesus is given this opportunity, and this, this passage um, is, is written in, in Isaiah about what the Messiah was anointed to do. And, and I'm just going to read it really quickly, what Jesus says here in verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon me. This is quoting from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There are a lot of very good things, we would say very good things, that, that, are, that the Messiah, the Messiah would do. Um, he, he, like preach the gospel, heal the brokenhearted, heal the blind, etc., things like that. And, and as we see here in, in Isaiah chapter 61 is where we have it. it. They wouldn't have had chapter and verse. This would have just been a big scroll and he would have uh, picked this passage. But this is passage about him. It's about the Messiah. And, and so he's reading this. And, and as you can tell, it's, it's good things. These are good things. You know, he's, he's preaching the gospel to the poor. He's, he's healing the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. And, and he's re- giving recovery of sight to the blind, things like that. And, and it's very easy to get excited about that. And I believe that that last thing that he says, or, or that second to last thing that he says, the, the healing of the blind, I believe that that's the miracle that the people that were following him around, that was the thing that they wanted to experience. That was what we came to see. It was not uncommon for the people who followed Jesus around to, to not really interact a whole lot with his words until they saw a miracle, until they saw him perform a show for them. And, and I'm not trying to degrade it because I do believe that many people heard his words, but also even Jesus talks about the, the crooked and perverse generation that only desires to see a, a miracle. And so I think that when he talks about healing the blind, people in the, in the area, the, the synagogue here, they, they probably got, okay, here we go. We're going to start seeing him heal, and he's going to start making, performing miracles. And this is, this is the show that I came to see. And so those other words about, you know, preaching the gospel and healing the brokenhearted, those are great, and we like those, but we want to see the proof through the miracle, Jesus. And, and I think that this can be true for us even today. Um, I can, I spend too much time on the internet sometimes looking at comment threads about, you know, why does, if God is real, why, why does he let this thing happen? Um, if, if God is, is really in control of everything, then how can he, 
allow this person to be sick or allow this person to die or allow why, why didn't he heal that person, um, etc. Things like that. And, and God becomes a genie in a bottle to us where, where we, we're, we're okay with him being there as long as he's doing what we want him to do. As long as he's performing the miracles that, that I think he should perform or giving me the blessings that I think he should, per, that he should give me. We, we, if we aren't careful, he becomes a, a wind-up monkey where, where I wound you up. Now you, you perform. You, you give me entertainment or you give me what I want. And that's dangerous. I, I think hopefully it's obvious why it's dangerous. But, but really, if we, if we go into the detail of that, it is not who God is. You see, God is not, he's not under our authority. He, he is not our slave to do what we want him to do. God is sovereign over us. He is sovereign over all. And that means that his ways are not our ways, as Isaiah also says. It means that we do not command the oceans. We do not, we do, not do the things that God can do. And therefore, we, we are not allowed to demand anything from him even as good or as helpful or as um, socially conscious as it may be. Because do we want starvation in the world? No. Could God fix that? Yes. Why doesn't he? Because he's sovereign and his purposes and his ways are not ours. And, and sin entered the world. These things happened because we have sinned, that kind of thing. It's, it's kind of, you know, Adam and our fault. That, that we're in this boat. And so we have to be careful that we don't point at God and tell him, get to work. But either way, Jesus continues on in his conversation by, by really, <laughs> he makes these comments that start the tensions to kind of rise a bit. Um, the, the pot starts to get stirred because he goes on and he kind of perceives in their mind that they're excited about this all right, we're about to see these miracles. And, and he says here in verse, um, let's just read verse 21 and 22 here. It says, um, and he began to say to them, because all their eyes are fixed on them, as we see in verse 20, he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right here, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Right here, he's claiming, I have fulfilled that. You have seen the, the acceptable year of the Lord you're seeing that right in front of you. So he's claiming right here to be a mess the Messiah. And so all in verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This is interesting reaction because he's claiming to be a Messiah. They would have understand the Messiah. Sorry, I keep saying a. He's claiming to be the Messiah. They would have understood that he's claiming to be the Messiah. And they don't get angry at that necessarily, at least from the text that we read here. We don't see them getting angry about that comment. We see them marveling at that comment, like, how can this be? This guy is Joseph's son. Did we not see him growing up in, in Nazareth? Was he not little Jesus down on the corner? You know, that kind of thing. Did we not see that? And he's claiming to be the Messiah. It wasn't necessarily a questioning of what he was saying. It was more of a, okay, Jesus, you're saying that you're the Messiah, but we know you to be Joseph's son, so hang on, tell us what's going on here. And so it wasn't necessarily a, 
um, angry, no, this isn't, you're not right. It's more of a, I need more clarification here. And what you're saying is getting a little radical because the Messiah is a big deal to the Jewish people. But at this point, what we read here doesn't indicate that they're angry at what he said. It doesn't indicate that they are mad that he's claiming to be the Messiah. It's indicating that they're asking for more information, that they're, they're asking for clarification, maybe with a little bit of doubt, maybe with a little bit of skepticism. And, and so we see that when people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, right here in his words, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the one who would come and save the Jewish people in their mind, that he would save them. He would bring them out of the, out of the slavery to the Roman Empire, out of all the bad, that they would be now put in command of the world, all of those things. And then we see that question in their head or in their minds of, isn't this Joseph's son? But Jesus wasn't afraid. We need to be clear on this. Jesus wasn't afraid of confessing the truth about who he was. The, the people may be uncomfortable with him, but that was his point. And so we need to be clear that, that he is not scared of that. He claims to be God. He claims to be the Messiah multiple times. And, and we need to not shy away from that truth. And so we move on from that. And, and this is where Jesus, again, perceiving the crowd to kind of be, this is where tensions start to boil over in the next few comments that he makes. Because as the crowd waits for Jesus to continue his words, they, they give him an opportunity to continue clarifying what he means, they start to get more uncomfortable with his words because Jesus, as he often does, anticipates their thoughts. He knows that they were wanting a miracle for him to perform, to, for him to prove that he was the Messiah. And he saw that they would ask him to show this proof of his power through, through healing. Let's read that in verse 23. It says this, uh, he said to them, you will surely say uh, this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Prove it, is what, is what this, this, this is essentially saying. And then verse 24, then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. Uh, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus says, I'm not going to perform this miracle because, historically speaking, Prophets are not welcome in their own country. And he gives the example of Elijah and Elisha. And not only does he give the example of those two, but he talks about three people groups, two people groups, but three people groups uh, in total, uh, that the Jewish people of the time specifically would consider underneath themselves. Women, sick people, and most of all, Gentiles. So. Those three people are met in those two people here because Zarephath and Naaman were both Gentiles. One of them was a woman and both of them were sick or well, one of them was sick. And so the three people that really the Jewish people did not uh, respect in any way, really, uh, Jesus mentions those are the people who were sent to be 
on equal ground with the Jewish people in the past. Here's the thing is specifically in that time, the Jews had a, had a saying that they would say, which was the only thing that a Gentile was good for was to fuel the flames of hell. That, that was it. So, so to put a Gentile, not only one Gentile, but two Gentiles on the same level of salvation and for Jesus to be saying essentially in his words that he is here to save Gentiles as well, that was problematic. That is not okay. Here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah of the Jews, the, the, the man who is going to raise the Jewish people above all other nations. He's going to use their enemies as his footstool. He's going to wipe the face of the earth from anybody who has ever cursed them. And he's saying that is not why he came, but to give them equal ground as the Jews as far as salvation is concerned that he's here to save both Jews and Gentiles. They didn't believe that Elijah and Elisha were rejected even in their hearts. They didn't, they didn't want to admit that they had, <laughs> the, the Jewish people had a long history of rejecting uh, prof the prophets that God had sent. Most of them they killed. Most of the prophets that God sent, they actually, they actually murdered. So that was a painful enough teaching that Jesus was giving, that here's Elijah and Elisha, and they weren't, they were sent to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people rejected them, so they ended up going to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles accepted them. And, and so that was a painful enough teaching. But in, in place of the people that, the, that had, they had little respect for in regards of spiritual gains, to place them on equal footing as Jewish people, that was, that was going too far in their minds. Maybe that's not even the best term. That was unacceptable in their minds. That is not even possible in their minds. It's a better word for it. And so much like today, when people think of the good person of Jesus and his, his grace, his love, um, his mercy, etc., no, no one has a real problem with this. Nobody has a real problem with Jesus' good teachings and how to be a better person and how to treat others with love and respect. No, there are very few people that would have a problem with those things as far as morality is concerned. But when, when he demands our life, when he demands our submission to his, to his commands, his, our obedience to the demands that he makes, and, and that we cannot live our own life, but that we must, undercome, we must come under his authority and give up whatever our sins may be to stop doing them, to live a different life, well, then we fight. Then we, we can't accept that. That's unacceptable because we refuse to do any of those things. You can't change me. You cannot change who I am. That's not fair. And so what happens is these people, they drive him out of their lives. They push him away. They harden their hearts. They say, well, God can't be real because sickness is in the world or whatever. They, they come up with their, their defenses because it demands change to follow Jesus Christ. It demands us to accept the fact that not only was Jesus here to save the broken, to heal the broken, but that we all are broken. And that means I am broken. And that means I need a savior. And that was the Jewish problem because they didn't think that they were broken. 
They didn't think they needed the Savior. They thought that they just needed a Messiah to, to come and conquer the world for them. And, and to, to be told, you're broken too, and you need salvation too, that was, that was too much. And so the people in the synagogue did the same thing to physically to Jesus that we do often in our hearts. They pushed, they shoved, they drove him all the way out of the synagogue. They drove him through the streets of the town of Nazareth. They drove him all the way out to, to the boonies, if you will, where there's a cliff. And their intention was to throw him off of that cliff in order to kill him. That was what their, their response was to this because it was so unacceptable that Jesus would be asking them or telling them in a sense that you are broken, the Gentiles are broken, I came to save both. That was unacceptable. And, and here's the thing, as we, we continue and we read in verse 30, uh, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. We don't really know what happened. The, the text does not give us an indication of literally what happened. So there are some people that say he disappeared miraculously. Um, there are other people that say um, he just fought his way through the crowd. There's other people that say he gave them a look and walked through. The, like There's all sorts of different uh, opinions on this. We don't know what happened. What we do know is that there was a point. He allowed them to push him all the way to the cliff. And there was a point when either he said, that's enough, I'm not, I'm not doing this right now because it's not my time to die, or, or the people realized we don't really want to kill him right now and they kind of let him go, that's possible. But whatever happened, he got out. And really, it's not important what happened. What's important is they didn't kill him. It wasn't Jesus' time to die yet. And, and for all indications, we don't have any evidence that Jesus ever went back to his hometown. We don't, we don't have any evidence that he ever went back to Nazareth after this point. And so they drove him out of their hearts. They drove him out of their city. <laughs> and they, they drove him out of their lives in that moment. And there's particular specific application to our lives today within this passage. Actually, there's a few. Um, we have to be honest with ourselves on our priorities in our walk with Christ. We have to be honest with, are we, are we pleasing Him? Are we, are we placing His commands and His, his demands and His laws and his, his love above and before everything and everyone else in every aspect of our lives? Are we, are we learning His Word? Are we discipling others? Are we making time to pray and to spend quality time with Him? Are we going to church? Those kinds of things are important, but it, but it even goes further than that, this passage does. And that is, how do you react to who Jesus is? When we truly look at who Jesus Christ is, and, and I love that we're going through the book of Luke right now, I love going through the Gospels, but when we look at it, the way we're looking at it, very slowly, very methodically, how do you react to who Jesus truly is, who the Bible says he is? When he demands you to, to not continue in your sin, when he commands you to stop sinning and to follow him, how do you interact with that? 
How do you, how do you interact with his word at saying, don't do this, don't live like that, don't say that? Those are, those are important things. When he chooses to forgive and change someone that you hate or that you don't think deserves to be saved, do you, do you throw him off the cliff? Do you harden your heart towards him? Because oftentimes our opinion of ourselves is much higher than the opinions of others. And we think that we are justified in throwing someone off a cliff. Is Jesus just a good person to you? Or is he your king who leads and directs your every step? Are you looking to Jesus for just moral advice? and picking and choosing which, which things you like and which things you don't like and following the things that you like and not following the things that you don't like? Or is he king? Is what he says truth, complete, regardless of your opinions on the matter? Because that changes who you are. If you aren't sure, or if you haven't even stopped to, to interact with these questions, let me encourage you to spend some time to meditate on what it costs to follow Christ, and maybe even more importantly, what it costs to reject him, what it costs to throw him out, and which one you would like to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for who you are, and Lord, I thank you that you did not, you didn't tiptoe around things. You spoke directly, you spoke clearly, and when we look at your word, we see how good you are to people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to convict our hearts, help us to change, help us to follow you, help us to look for ways that we can better serve and better follow our King. We love you so much, and we thank you in your name. Amen. <laughs>